Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Super excited for you to hear today's recorded conversation. My guest is Suzanne DeWitt Hall. I met her on Twitter, and the reason that I was intrigued by her is because she let me know that she had a book called A Theology of Desire and a companion book called Sex with God. And that was like ah, right up on my frequency, and I had to consume her books as quickly as possible. And in doing so, I realized not to consume them oh so quickly. Suzanne has offered us a treat with a latest publication called Sleeper Awake, 40 Days of Companionship for the Deconstruction Process, A Theology of Desire, Sex with God, Sleeper Awake. These are all really lovely, delectable devotionals that will help you along your deconstruction and unlearning process. And I have an extra appreciation for them because I believe they kind of fold into an erotic deconstruction as well. And I would recommend that if you're going through something like that, whether you're questioning your sexual orientation, your overall sexual identity, if you're trying to get in touch with a more erotic theology and erotic understanding of the nature of God, I would sink your teeth into these delectable little bites because this is exactly what we need. We need more female voices encouraging us to go along this process. Process. And her companionship books offer just that. We have such a great conversation. We talk about all of the things that she discovered through questioning what her desires meant for her when she was finding herself hungry for more, when she found her desires and her heart leading her towards love with a woman while she was in a marriage and watching it fall apart. All of that and more, Suzanne shares her story with us. We talk so much just about the deconstruction process. So if that is way up on your frequency right now, settle in and get ready for this extraordinary conversation with an amazing woman. As always, listeners, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective. Suzanne DeWitt Paul. discovered you on Twitter and I you shot out like oh I wrote this book and I went that is right up my alley like theology and eroticism mm -hmm, right there and so I immediately ordered them and I love that they're these just these little daily practices that you can do to kind of rejuvenate a new idea of desire and eroticism within the nature of God and seeing how beautiful that is because I was like 
right on my track. What inspired you to take this angle with uh, this theological approach and this embracing of desire? Well, I was, I started writing a blog called A Theology of Desire probably in 2007 or so, I guess. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was um, unhappily married to my high school sweetheart. I'm in my um, 50s now. So um, I was really exploring, I was, I had come to faith late um, in 2001, I went to church for kind of the first time since I was a teenager, so really having gone to church. And um, my soul had always been hungry and I'd been uh, pretty unhappy um, for all, most of my life. And I was in this marriage that was very dysfunctional. And um, I had been studying Catholic, Roman Catholicism and loved a lot of the beauty and mystery and sort of the sacramental theology of Roman Catholicism. And as part of that, um, oh, there's also a, a strong kind of exploration and beauty of understanding of the idea of suffering in, in Roman Catholicism. And I was drawn to that because I didn't want to be living my life in the dysfunctional ways I had before. And I wanted to, uh, acknowledge and explore this pain that I was experiencing, this, this, um, this unfulfilled desire that I didn't even, I didn't know what to do with. And so I started writing it then. So that was back, um, like I said, probably about 2007 or so. Then my marriage blew up. I fell in love with my best friend who was a female. Um, everything changed in my life. I divorced and um, and extremely happily married now um, to, to this beautiful person. And I knew that I wanted to turn it, um, they'd been uh, trying to, they'd been urging me to turn Theology of Desire into a book for a long time and wanted this book on sexuality, wanted me to write a book on sexuality. Because before then, I'd written a book, the first, the first, devo first of my devotionals. Sorry, my, my story sort of uh, goes in circles here a little mm. bit. Um, okay. The first one was called Where True Love Is. And that was unpacking the learning that both of us, she and I, had related to gay and lesbian orientations because of our religious formation. We had come together and had met in church and had both very strongly thought that homosexual relationships were sinful. And we didn't understand how we could possibly be in love and love God as much as we did. And so we had to kind of unpack that. And uh, the scriptures started revealing themselves in different ways when this change happened in our relationship. So we were doing daily Bible studies and I started taking notes on what we were thinking and hearing and did a lot of writing. And I eventually turned that into a devotional and that triggered a series of devotionals, which ultimately led to the ones that you read, A Theology of Desire and Sex with God. So that's, I kind of truncated the story. Um, but <laughs> that's where it started. I don't know. I can tell you more about Sex with God specifically because what a catchy title. I mean, I got that and I was like, first thing I said to my husband is, I was like, just imagine just literally for a moment, sex with God. 
like, what would that be like? And he's like, well, that's an orgasm. And I kind of laughed and I went, but precisely what made you start with this startling title as a devotion? Cause it's bold and it's kind of a slap in the face to this idea that we separate ourselves from God when we're even talking about sex. Yeah. So my beloved came up with the title. Um, I had been working on the book and we played with a few ideas. And then one day they just said, you know, how about sex with God? And it was like, ding, ding, ding. It was perfect. Because one of the central premises um, that I go into is the idea that anytime we are engaging sexually or in any other way, for that matter, God is both outside of us and present with us in, in the space outside our bodies. And is also part of us um, as, you know, the temples of the Holy Spirit or permeating every atom. However, there's a number of ways to think about that internal presence and also the presence of God in the person that you're with. So this sex with God was literally, as you're saying, that idea that when we're having sex, God is there and we can, we can be having sex literally with God through the beloved, with God, with ourselves and inviting God in. So there, there were all these layers of meaning in that phrase and it just seemed perfect. Mm-hmm. But people have been, some people have been pretty appalled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because yep. yeah, there's such a separation. I remember even, I think it was around last year, I heard this pastor that I had followed and he's a local pastor out here in Minnesota. And he was asked a question about like, what happens when we have sex? Where is God? You know? And it was this idea of, is Jesus sitting at the end of my bed watching me, you know? And he's like, I don't like to think of that idea. And I'm like, but yes, like Jesus is like right there. Like, yes, do this. This is good. But not so, just take that idea out of it, right? There's not a literal Jesus sitting there. But so many pastors and church leaders kind of veer away from even answering the question or will say things like, I would just rather like to think that God gives me alone time. And I think, well, that is such a such a horrible idea for me to think that God's like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this. And that is the most connecting and holy thing that we can do with another person. Why would we think that God's not a part of it? But so many people do separate and it is this kind of purity culture narrative, especially in the evangelical circles where, you know, sex is bad and desire is bad and masturbation is bad and same sex is definitely bad. And it's like, well, that goes against everything that you feel within. You're denying internal natures. Where did they come from if not from God? And that's kind of like what I think you're unpacking here is, no, this is true. This is a part of God and it's okay to embrace it. And so start with why did you think the devotional was the best course of action? I mean, because I love it um, and it's not something I think I think a lot of authors kind of skip out on that opportunity so the devotionals was this kind of a thing you were doing are you a journaler were you kind of just going through these great questions that you were asking of yourself and kind of just just imprinted that into the devotionals devotionals? well the idea for the devotional format popped out of the where to love the first um where to love is devotional and I think it that probably came because we had been doing these daily Bible studies and they tended to therefore central Mm. um, center around a single premise. Um, So a lot of my notes or the blogs that I was writing had a central thing that was being unpacked. And so it lent itself well to the format. And then though, over time, I realized 
how powerful it is. Um, some people will read my books in a few sittings, um, right? They'll sit down and read just a whole bunch of entries. And in other cases, people use them as, the, as they were designed um, to be read you know, one day at a time, which gives us a bit of space and mental bandwidth to unpack that single concept throughout the day, on and off, throughout some period of time. Because I think we're, you know, we're a binge culture. We get something that we like, the latest show or whatever it is, and we just mass consume it and then we're done with it. And there's only, I think that there's, there's so much um, richness to be probed. And one of my goals is that not so much for me to be talking, but I, I like to think of myself as a seed planter and that the, the Holy Spirit, you know, that God themselves come in and speak and that I would just be a vehicle for opening that. So if we don't give ourselves time and space for that, then there's an, an opportunity that's lost. I don't criticize people for reading them, these books in other ways, because they clearly can be read that way. But if, if they are used in this, that manner of devotional, it does give people the chance to let the spirit kind of speak about that particular topic, you know, each, each topic each yeah, day. Yeah. I wanted to do that too, because like I, I wanted to jump in and just hurry up and get you on because I was just really excited to see theology and sex and desire together because I don't see that very often. And then even when I do sometimes, and it's a lot of times with male authors, I think, Hey, you still miss the point. There's something I'm still looking for. Mm. Um, so what I did is I did slow down and I really started thinking about this. And there were a couple of them that I really just, oh, I was like, yes. And one was day 13, the blossoming of desire. Mm. And so you reference uh, Philippians 3.12. And then you just kind of said, have you ever wondered what will happen to our desires when we leave this world? And will our desires be gone? And I've often wrestled with that same idea because I've heard that throughout different theological discussions is that, oh, desire won't exist and sex will just be, we won't even do that. And I think, why am I spending all of this time to figure out how to do it and what it means and find pleasure and joy in it if I'm just going to let it go? And then that makes me believe too that, okay, so then is desire in sex bad? And so upon just you sitting here with this, the, these wonders about, you know, what if desire is actually something that's fueling this burning fire within us? So let's just kind of talk about that. What, what was it that transformed in your ideas of desire when you were going through kind of all of this unlearning? Boy, um, it's, it's so interrelated. Yeah, there's like a few different themes that are interrelated and onion skinned here. I think the first bit was that desire is not a bad thing even if it's unfulfilled, right? So that, that my starting point was that I feel these desires. I don't know what to do about them. In some cases, they're inappropriately directed, right? Because I was in this un unhappy marriage and there wasn't true intimacy. I had hunger for true intimacy, which sometimes has to do with physical and sometimes doesn't. Intimacy is a complex thing. So the first thing was the grappling with, with desire and trying to make sense of what I was experiencing and trying to figure out if it was bad, right? So that was the first layer. And I wanted to just backtrack a little bit before I continue on to the other, to some other layers. And I read 
Peter Kreeft years ago, uh, he wrote an article or maybe it was a talk on um, the title was, is there sex in heaven? I don't know if you've read that um, in your travels, but he ultimately said sex in heaven wouldn't be necessary. It would be like eating chocolate while you're having sex now. You just wouldn't want it. And part of that appealed to me to the idea that it was going to be so glorious, whatever this heaven is. And I thought it was, that was an interesting take. And then more recently, I've kind of thought, well, what would it be like if you were eating chocolate while you were making love? Would that necessarily be a bad thing? <laughs> I don't know. I've never tried it, but you know, it, um, <laughs> so there is this idea of Jesus at the end of the bed and that there's this, all this shame associated, like you were mentioning that seemed silly for uh, if we are to believe that there is this creator who intentionally designed the universe and humans and all the other creatures and the flowers and everything, where sex is such an integral part of so much of it and us, you know, the Christian premise of being made in the image and likeness of God, therefore God is in some way reflected by us, sex being such a huge thing. How could it not be reflective of God? And there's also this longstanding mystical Christian tradition of understanding God almost in sexual terms that, you know, the mystical understandings of God tend to be more experiential. And there are many mystics who have had, they describe their experience, the physical experiences of God in sexual terms. It'll be a flaming sword plunging into their center. It's that kind of terminology is frequently used and mystical marriages are described. So, and there's a lot of sexual marital imagery in scriptures. Mm -hmm. So the, this idea that our desire would be a bad thing, even our physical, you know, any of our desires would be a bad thing and our physical desires being a bad thing seemed silly. And I wanted to probe how, God, part of what I did in Theology of Desire and then rolling into, because they're sort of companion books, rolling into Sex with God was looking not just at our hungers, but also God's hungers for us and how ours reflect God's and God's reflect ours and how the two are interwoven. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Sorry, I'm just soaking that in. Yeah, when I started on kind of this path towards exploring an erotic theology, there was so much language out there just dedicated to pushing back any kind of a literal kind of transference of that understanding. And so I got really excited because I was like, oh, you know, I can see so many other doors opening to all of these other sexual ideas and even orientations that I used to look like at like no those are sins and it led my husband and I towards kind of you know what is polyamory and wanting to understand that orientation or not orientation that kind of way of relating to people and just being able to explore theology in this erotic with this erotic lens kind of have has helped me release a lot of the judgments that have come mm. from the purity culture imprints to the point where, you know, we're like, what would that be like? And do we know people like that? And let's learn about this. And what does that mean? And, and so I just really find that this is so beneficial for people who are kind of coming out of that purity culture narrative 
and who are kind of shifting away from that evangelical narrative that, you know, specifically takes um, same sex out of the, the equation of God's grace and love. When you started going on your own journey, what was it like within your relationships that you had with your husband at the time? And what kind of transpired throughout that? Was there a lot of relationship breakage outside of your divorce with your husband? And did you struggle a lot with just kind of coming to terms with realizing who you really are? It was very traumatic. My marriage, I knew that it was in its final days and I was kind of trying to wait out my son graduating from high school due to, you know, a number of reasons. So when my relationship with my friend shifted into this other beautiful thing, it was happening at at the same time that my marriage was dying. It was kind of synchronous. My beloved and I met in a socially conservative church that I had helped found that it was an all male Episcopal structure starting, you know, from a male priests, male rector's council, going up to bishops, going up to a patriarch. Women could teach women's Bible studies. They couldn't give sermons. There were, you know, there were, there were certain things you couldn't do within the church. And she had been raised in a primarily, her, her faith formation was primarily Southern Baptist. Mine was primarily Roman Catholic. And so it was hard. I mean, we were asked to leave that church because they said that it would be confusing for the congregation for us to continue. And that was before, you know, our relationship was any kind of public. It was just rumor. And a lot of those relationships were severed. You know, there was tons of judgment and and they did not understand. I mean, they, they had trouble handling divorce, let alone a same sex couple our families, particularly my beloved's family, had real trouble with it because their uh, very evangelical Christian formed mindsets. So they had real trouble. And, you know, my mother-in-law worried that she was going to go to hell because of it. So she has come way around and doesn't have those concerns. But it was, it was rough. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of fallout and a lot of rebuilding Um, But, you know, it started some very, very important deconstruction of our faith that needed to happen. And that did open the doors that you were talking about, about the kinds of contemplations and conversations that you're having now with your husband. You know, one of the things I think about is this idea of God, Emmanuel, you know, God with us, and that Jesus came and the world was shaken apart in its understanding of what righteousness meant um, within the Jewish culture. And I think that it still happens in our life. Often someone we will meet um, might be a family member, might be someone we fall in love with, might be, you know, a friend. And something about who they are turns our world upside down. And we have to wrestle with reality in a way that we never have before. And we're given new chances to evaluate what God thinks and how God views things. And were we right? Were we wrong? Uh, so that's really what happened with us. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity and, a, and a, a shaking free of our understandings of this rule-based God of anger and judgment rather than who we were supposed to somehow simultaneously believe God is long. Um, it gave us that opportunity to really examine what that meant. Mm. I also appreciate how you kind of take a different twist on 
how just how we view the scriptures and how we view the verses that we have come to understand to mean something else. So day 15 of a theology of desire, you talk about the woman at the well. Mm. And you left me with this, you left a steamy interpretation because you said it was kind of like Jesus being the dude at the bar flirting. And right after I had read that, I told my friend, I was like, what do you think about this concept? And I kind of, I read him the, the, the John 4, 7 through 15. And then I, t- I read him the first couple paragraphs and he's like, uh-uh, no, that's not how we see Jesus. And <laughs> I liked it. So, I mean, let's talk about this story. I mean, it's a great twist on how to view Jesus. And it made me just like, I was rereading so many verses after that, like, oh, Oh, Jesus got a little swagger here now. And <laughs> I love that too. And I think um, I think my friend Laura Laura Green, that's how you pronounce her last name. She's a Twitter friend. And she uh, I think Lutheran she, pastor friend tweeted a contemporized interpretation of this exchange. Yeah. 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 So that that prompted my thing. I had never viewed that exchange. You know, the steamiest exchange that I find in there, other than the Song of Songs, obviously, which is all about the steam, but um is you know, Mary Magdalene washing Jesus' feet and kissing oh. them. I mean, that's so erotic. But yeah. um, the but this one I had never viewed in that way of of how sort of sassy and flirtatious the exchange actually is. I have tended to picture that woman as maybe old and kind of beaten down. And you picture her being ostracized from the community, from the other women and being judged and all these things. And to read it with just that slight twist of viewpoint was really interesting. And it's kind of eye-opening about how many stories could we potentially be reading? I don't even want to say in the wrong way, although it's, it's valid to say the wrong way. You know, a lot of times I'm sure, but there are so many different ways of reading things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that this yeah. could be, you know, Jesus getting flirty with someone and why not? Why wouldn't he? And I mean, what it, would be wrong with that? Right. And I, I look at it like, and you know, I've gotten like that at the bar, right? I've flirted at people that I'm not going to take them home, but sometimes it feels good to just dish out the compliments to other people, especially if you think they probably use it because I've mm-hmm. had people do that. Right. So it's that whole just giving just because you feel like giving. And I imagine, I mean, a similar depiction of the woman at the well and here's Jesus like, well, oh, you still got it. You're still good looking, you know? Aww. Yeah. But then that, and then I kind of read that verse a little differently, like drink my water and you'll never thirst again. Like how <laughs> much heft of a, of a seduction is in that verse that right. I now see. And I'm like, yes, I love it. <laughs> I especially like the feet washing um, imagery too. And I've looked at that in so many different ways. And there's just really no way to not see it as an erotic depiction of what one does, how one surrenders and devotes themselves to another in such a, such a beautiful fleshly sense, right? And I think we're, it feels like we were getting close to physical touch and intimacy being kind of more generally accepted amongst everybody, friends, not just lovers. And we're coming into this new era of fearing touch now. And I worry about 
us going back into this idea of like every single touch and every extension of goodwill to try and just make someone feel felt and heard and seen is going to be seen in either a dangerous way or a non-consensual way or an invasive way. And touch is really kind of fundamental within the gospels, especially here. And so you said your, your previous relationship lacked intimacy. Do you see that outward kind of taking place now that we're kind of losing a little bit of that intimacy amongst humanity? Oh, that's a good question. It's been sort of marvelous to see the positive shifts for people who already didn't have access to the public, right? So we saw this person, I'm not sure what their physical condition was, I can't remember, it was a young person and their, their parent posted a video of them watching one of my favorite Twitter priests who's just, he's, he's gay and he's fantastic and encouraging and sassy. And they showed this video of their child who just started freaking out with joy that they got to watch this priest, that it was Sunday again and they could watch the service. And you've got all these people who have not had the opportunity to enter into particularly uh, church situations who now all these services are being offered online, right? Which are giving them, they've been excluded, whether it's because they're gay or trans and, and know that people will look at them, whether it's because of physical disability, all these reasons. So we're seeing, um, I think this simultaneous shift in some people who have been excluded for years and ignored, right? We never thought about it. I never thought about it. Having inclusion in new ways and finding um, ways of connecting. And then you've got these masses, presumably of more people, I would imagine the numbers are greater, who are isolated. And especially those, I feel so blessed that I live with my beloved and we are mm -hmm. so content when it's just the two of us. I mean, that's our perfect state in a lot of ways to return to. That's our safe space. I mean, mm -hmm. we like being with people, but when we, when, when it's just the two of us, it's very restorative and safe, refueling. So we're blessed to have that yeah. um, where, you know, people who are alone and, or I've been thinking about people in unhappy relationships and how toxic that must mm -hmm. be and how difficult to be trapped if you are used to going out into the world to find your recharging and your affirmations and whether it's for career or, or your volunteer activities, whatever, and you can't do them anymore. So yeah, I think it's, it's gotta be a really rough time. I never thought about the going backwards that you were discussing, but our eldest grandson is a hugger and he's mm -hmm. a lover and he was probably nine or 10, I think. And he started getting into trouble at school because he would just go up and hug people. Yeah. And in this, you know, like you were saying, the, the issues of consent and things like that, it's extremely important to teach kids yes. that you can't just touch people without permission. At the same time, you want to, it's so rare that you have young people who are so giving of their own, of themselves emotionally and who are just willing to say, hey, I love you. Here, give me a hug. You know, yeah. so it's a fine line to walk, I think. Um, it is. It seems it, like as we get older... We're taught to touch people less and love people less and, and express that we love them less. I see that happening. You know, there's even a shift around, I'd say, between 9 and 12 with boys especially. I don't want to hug my mom anymore. I don't want to kiss her in front of people. And I've asked myself, is that something that something is just provoked from within? 
Or is that a societal influence teaching we need to start reducing intimacy between the opposite sex or my mom or what have you? And just in the last year watching my boys, I kind of tend to think it, there might be this, I don't know what it is, there's this internal discomfort that children have when they reach this age, like, can I? And then we just go towards being an adult, like, I can't touch anyone. I don't hug people. Don't hug me. I cannot assume to hug you. Now we can't shake hands. And so I just wonder, where do we find that breakage point in our age and kind of get back to finding a new way to still embrace it, by, but still being cautious about not, you know, taking up someone's space who's not wanting it? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if it, it seems like we need new conversation with kids generally about sex, intimacy, bodies, yes. you know, all of that for, for all kinds of reasons, whether it's um, consent, whether it's body image and body shame, uh, whether it's what makes sex healthy and not healthy, um, you know, on every level, it seems like we need those conversations. And, you know, when it comes to adolescence, they're going through so much developmentally, you know, where they're having to distance themselves in order to, you know, go to the, to recognize the difference between the separation between themselves and parents and, you know, yeah. all that developmental stuff. It's, it's so messy and complicated. <laughs> it really is. It is. So I would to love to see a, a, a total like shift towards redeveloping all of the ways in which we educate sexually and including erotically. It's like, we don't even put that component into it. We just separate it. And I mean, in so many regards, you lay down the word erotic and people are like, oh, so like porn. And so there's no distinction or understanding of what that is. But the same with desire too, right? Like where Pope John Paul II, he wrote the, a theology of the body. Right. And so for me, when I read what he wrote, I appreciated how he was trying to bring body and spirit back together. Because it seems like maybe it was even around Luther's time. It seems like there was just just big split. And we took the body out of the equation and deemed it bad along with the desire. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should consent to all of the desires. And so how do you kind of encourage people to really take some time to reflect and discern upon what's a good desire to act on? if they maybe even think they hear God telling them to do it? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think that the pushback against purity culture has created an interesting time stamp. You know, I often talk about pendulum swings. You know, purity culture was one end, and then there's almost an anything goes mindset now within, you know, within Christian circles who are grappling with these issues. And I don't think that that's where we tend to find God is at either of the poles. We tend to find mm. God sort of the both and, um, but in the, in the middle, you know, that there is this, I think that the, the answer is the seeking for wholeness, that if what we're hungry for is something that leads to wholeness for ourselves and for those we love, then it's probably a good thing. If it doesn't, then there's something askew. Now that's, you know, that's an easy thing to say and a harder thing to live out because there is complexity there. We've got all these teachings that make us feel like our hungers are negative. And so we might think that fulfilling a, a natural 
beautiful hunger is something that doesn't make us whole or, you know, loving someone of the same sex or something like that. But I think if you are earnestly and honestly desiring the best for the person that you're engaging with um, physically and intimately, even if that's yourself, then that's, you know, that's where you're going to find God. That's where God is, is, you know, where the love is, that's where God is. And that we've, we've been bad, you know, as a, as a Western society in particular, I don't know that much about other cultures when it comes to these issues, but we're very, you know, externalizing and lusting over people, transforming them into objects, which denies Mm -hmm. their, their inherent beauty and divinity. And that's, that's just not good. You know, that objectification, if a desire and hunger is, is objectifying, then maybe it's not the best way. And maybe it could be, so I, I wouldn't, I'm not saying that the desire itself is wrong, but that perhaps it can be massaged and we can be better about checking ourselves when we're turning someone else into a thing that satisfies us rather than a person who is worthy of connection and respect and love. Even if we don't love them as a partner, they're worthy of that. You know, they're worthy of that love and not just being seen as a piece of something. Yes, definitely. I don't know if you saw the news, but I believe it was Rachel Evan Wood came out and recently accused Marilyn Manson. Did you see those headlines? I saw the headlines. I didn't read the stories. So I watched some of her testimony. She was just kind of going on about kind of the crazy, wicked, horrible things he did to her sexually in the name of, I don't know, love, but consent was brought up and consent was given in the initial occurrences. But then later on, you know, obviously was like, okay, well, like I really didn't know what I was consenting to. And consent is totally important. Somebody said, had, had raised the question, is there something greater than consent when it comes down to making healthy, developed choices in the name of love, even in the name of sexual exploration? Is there something beyond that? And his question was, isn't there a greater good beyond just consent? So yes, this woman may have consented at the time because she trusted this man and then he ended up hurting her and she might've done it over a, a period of a few years or whatever it was, maybe still trying to trust in this idea that it would produce pleasure for her or something. But the question was, even if you have consent, should you do it? You know, and that's kind of a, a question I think a lot of people dance around right now is if I was given consent, that means I was given the go ahead. But have we discovered whether or not or even asked ourselves is even giving consent to this, whether it be a desire that you think you need to fulfill is such a good thing, is such an ethical thing, is such a really, truly loving thing. And do we have a responsibility to even if we accept that consent to still be, you know, a decent human being to this person. So do you have any thoughts on any of that or what you saw from the story? Your thought process and questions are very nuanced. So I respect that um, very much. One of the things I wrote about in Sex with God was the idea that sometimes we say yes when we don't really mean yes. There are ways to pressure people to get them to do what you want and then be able to say, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't say no. It happens in intimate, really, you know, it happens in marriages and in, in mm-hmm. close relationships all the time. I think we're, we're very prone to being 
manipulative, maybe even subconsciously. Mm. I wrote about this also in a book, another devotional called Pro-Life, Pro-Choice, Pro-Love, which was an attempt to offer a third way to talk about abortion because it's so polarized and neither side, it's really rare where you can have a conversation with either side listens to each other, just listens and tries Mm -hmm. to process things, process what they're hearing. So that was an attempt to do that. And one of the topics that I addressed in that book is the privilege of being able to say no. There is a thing where a lot of people don't have the ability to say no. And that might be an outright fear that they could be harmed. It could be a psychological situation where they've been, their emotional formation was so damaged that they just don't, they have never been trained to, or they're just so broken that they literally can't, they don't know how to. That this, this whole idea of consent is much more complex than simply the basics, which are absolutely needed of people saying, hey, are you willing to, you know, is it, is this mutual? Are we both agreeing to this? Right. So, I mean, that is, that baseline is definitely necessary, but the reality is that it is much more complex as you're, as you're pointing out, consent is often not a black and white issue. Um, And I hadn't thought about what you were saying. And and it sounds like that story may have been particularly ugly. So I don't know what she went through. I think though, that people who are interested in taking sexually or in other ways, don't really care if they have a responsibility not to do something wrong. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. You, you have to have a certain level of, and I'm not, I'm not judging this person because I don't know any, I don't know them and I don't know anything about the story, but there are people who are just takers and it often comes with power and yeah. fame and all those things, you know, where you're just used to people offering whatever to you and just taking it without thinking through what the ramifications on that other person are. So I think you're raising really important questions and I don't know what the answers to those are. You know, oh, that's-, that's okay. But thanks for thinking along with me though. They were, <laughs> they were good answers. So what's next on your agenda for writing? I know that you, you keep a blog. Um, what's next for Suzanne DeWitt Hall? Yeah, so you can find the information about the devotionals on where true love is.com. Um, it's also where true love is, is on Facebook and Twitter and some other places, but that's where you can kind of stay tuned with what's happening. What I'm working on right now is getting a devotional about deconstruction generally. You know, so many of us are working through unlearning facets of our faith and trying to find the bigger God behind it, trying to escape from this God who's the size of a book on our bedside table, you know, the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, it should be launching soon. The first one is called Sleeper Awake. Mm. And um, it was going to be one book. The same thing happened with the theology of desire and sex with God. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have this one book and it's going to tackle this topic in an integrated way. And then as I got into it, it got too unwieldy. And I decided I wanted to take theology of desire as its own thing. And then to deal with sexuality specifically, separately. The same thing has happened with this deconstruction book. It was going to be this one thing, an 80-page, an 80-day devotional. And then I just realized this past weekend, it really needs to be two books. So Mm -hmm. I've chopped it into two books. And uh, the first one is going to be kind of more conceptual and encouraging because there's so much fear. Uh, I don't know what you've faced, but... 
there's all these layers of concerns about things you'll lose, about what it means. You know, might I even lose God? You know, where am I? So there's all these emotions that are a piece of it. And then there's the more practical, tangible things related to it. So I'm breaking this book into two. So yeah, Sleeper Awake should be launching um, within the next month and a half. It'll be, Ooh. it'll be soon, soon, soon. I can't wait for that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we realized when we we're discussing this and, and thinking through that all of the devotionals are deconstruction books, right? I mean, they really are down yeah. a particular topic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this one just deals specifically with the process as a whole of deconstruction. And this is more up my alley because I've read so many deconstruction books and I always feel at the end of it that I didn't quite get told how to go through with this process. Mm. I just kind of like got to hear their experience, but I'm like, what do I do now? And so I really appreciate this. You break it down. You ask these big questions. You really think about them and you give yourself grace for not having the answers and being mm. completely challenged by them and having them really push at you. I mean, cause that a lot of that happened with me as I was kind of deconstructing out of it. And what's weird is I was only in this whole evangelical circle for a very short amount of time. I always kind of had more of a free open spirituality growing up. My mom and dad weren't really hard lined on any religion. There was Christian influence, but they were, you know, I say this all the time, but they were hippies. They were hippie parents. They were hippie parents raising me in a yuppie world is what I like to say because I was born in the eighties, but, and my mom just always kept up with the times and changed her mind all the time about everything spiritually and sexually. And plus my parents were sex freaks. So, I mean, anyway, somehow I got trapped in this bubble of shame (laughs) and like feeling like oral sex was going to make me burn in hell forever. So, I mean, that was, my husband was a trooper for that. Yeah, I had a lot of questions and I just didn't know how to even ask them. And so your books definitely do that. And we need more female voices, especially teaching us how to erotically deconstruct and come out of the purity culture. So just head nod to you. I salute you because this is exactly what we need um, more people to be looking at because deconstruction is, it's death, but you kind of help show that there is life with all of these questions and ponderings. So I appreciate your work and thank you so much for sharing space with uh, recorded conversations today, sharing your story. And thank you. I was so excited to discover you and your work and um, I'm thrilled to talk to you today. So thanks. I'm really glad to know you're out there. Thank you.